Hey, welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode number 119. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. That's where we do our daily show downtown every weekday from 4 to 6 Eastern Time. On the Zone Radio stations of Maine, you can pick up streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. Two interesting uh, conversations with talented actors on the program this week. A little bit later on, actress Joyce Bolifant returns to the podcast to uh, talk about her work primarily on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. We're gearing up for a big special celebrating the 50th anniversary of the series. She, of course, played Marie Slaughter for several seasons on the show. But we get things underway with uh, a very interesting conversation with actor and director Mark Metcalf. And, and this happens a lot, Carrie, when we know somebody for one or two roles that were especially prominent, and then you you dig a little deeper and talk to them and, and find out there's so much more to them. And boy, Mark Metcalf was certainly that. What a really interesting guy. He has, yes. Everybody knows him from Animal House and, and this handful of other roles playing sort of that same stereotype of a character, and he's so good at it. <laughs> that it it uh, it didn't prepare us for how much depth there is there. Um, you know, the, the discussion we have with him about uh, some of the theater work he's done. Yeah. Just it, wonderful. with kids and, and about being typecast mm. all those years as well. Now, we talked about Animal House, Douglas C. Niedermeyer, those Twisted Sister videos, Seinfeld, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and uh, Hill Street Blues. He was in the cast in season one of that as well. So a really interesting conversation with actor Mark Metcalf. Let's give a listen here on Downtown. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. And uh, and thanks to uh, my friend Matt Damon, who claims that his wife is your cousin. Is he, is he just making that up? Well, yes, no. Or is, I don't know what she is. Her, her mother is my cousin. Ah. So I don't know if that makes her a cousin once removed or a second cousin or a niece cousin. Or I don't know. But, but I, I've known her since she was just a few feet high. And I, I also found out in, in doing a little research that uh, you graduated from Westfield High School. I did indeed. And my father-in-law graduated from there the year after you. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. But I wonder uh, what was his name? Uh, Tom Hayward. But he said he, he kept to himself. He was kind of nerdy in high school, and you probably wouldn't have known him. <laughs> well, I, I felt nerdy. I think actually everybody feels like they're nerdy in high school. And uh, so I, I, I don't remember the name, but I my brother, my, my brother, it was in the class then behind him, two years behind me, my brother Roy Metcalf. And uh, he may know him because he knows and remembers a lot more <laughs> about about high school than I do because he hasn't done nearly as many drugs as I <laughs> <laughs> now, you left Westfield. You went to the University of Michigan. And am I right that you were studying engineering when somebody said, uh, hey, you ought, to, you ought to take one of these theater classes? Yeah, my well, my roommate said you should audition for these plays. They're doing uh, the three parts of Henry VI by, by William Shakespeare. He said the girls are really friendly in the theater department, so come audition to these plays. They're going to need a lot of actors. You're sure to get a part. And I did get... 13 different parts, 15 different parts, 13 different uh, makeup changes and costume changes, 
all those kind of one-line parts that you get in Shakespeare where uh, you just say, sir, the king is coming, you better <laughs> kneel down or something like that. So, yeah, so but that was it. I was an engineer. I had changed to architecture from engineering when he asked me to do that. And uh, it turned out he was right. The girls were friendlier, and it was a lot of fun being in plays. And, and uh, you, so and, I just I stayed. And you were focused on on stage work early in your career. I, did you move to New York? I moved to New York. I went. Let's see. I had to get out of a war, Vietnam War. So I sort of danced around out here in the West. I'm in Oregon now. Is where I live, and uh, just hiding out. And then when I got out of the, draft i went back to michigan and did plays and where is where i went to college as we said i went and did plays and when that was done i got a job at the milwaukee repertory theater i did a full season at milwaukee rep and after that i went to new york and stayed in new york for 25 years with side trips to la and various places to do some film work and television but i really refused to do television and film for the first five years I was in New York from 71 to about 76. Well, and uh, I, just did, I just said no. That, of course, uh, and, changed uh, in a big way with Animal House, but uh, there's an interesting backstory there. I understand that, that you actually had met John Belushi while you were having a picnic <laughs> in Central Park. Is that right? You've done uh, you've done some research. <laughs> yeah, I met John uh, before he was John Belushi. Uh, I was having a picnic in, before we were going to see a play at the Delacorte Theater, Shakespeare in the Park, that Joe Papp does. I'd I'd been in plays for Joe there, and a friend of mine, John Hurd, who's dead now, and his girlfriend Patrizia Patriani, and my girlfriend Pamela Reed, who's an actress, uh, were having a picnic on the grass while we waited for the doors to open so we could go in. And this medium-sized, heavy, long-haired guy with a beard came lumbering across the grass towards us. And my friend John Hurd, who had been in Chicago, and uh, his sister, Cordis, had done work for um, the Organic Theater in Chicago. So John had lived in Chicago for a little while, and he knew John Belushi, and uh, he waved to him and said, hey, John, come on over here. So Belushi comes over, and uh, we say, sit down, have some chicken, have some potato salad. Our girlfriends had made chicken and potato salad. We were having a classic American picnic. And uh, what's going on? And he started talking about this uh, audition that he had to have with a guy named Lorne Michaels for some uh, sketch comedy improv not improv but sketch comedy show that was going to be live on television every saturday night and uh he said i don't want to do it i don't want to do tv why should i do tv it's the enemy it's horrible it's it's the system and we said john they're going to pay you american money and look it's live you can do anything you want and so we talked for probably 20 minutes 30 minutes half an hour whatever uh, about this thing, and he got up. He's still not having made up his mind whether he would do it or not, and uh, lumbered away from us, and we realized at that moment that he'd eaten all the chicken and all the potato salad. <laughs> it was all gone. While he was ta- while he was doing most of the talking, we were we, we would talk and try to convince him, how could you say no to something like this? And I don't think we had anything to do with him deciding to do it, but uh, we at least had something to do with feeding him that day. We had Karen Allen on our show a couple of years ago. She was absolutely delightful, and uh, you got to know her on the plane out to Oregon. Yep, exactly. I, 
I rode on the plane from New York out to Oregon. She, I guess they, she must have taken a shuttle up from Washington because I think she was living in Washington at the time. And uh, we rode next to each other on the plane on the way out. And by the time I got to Oregon, I was madly in love with Karen Allen because she's so beautiful and, as you say, delightful. Yeah, she lives right near where you guys are in Fulver and Pittsfield. Right, right, yeah. Has yeah. her own business doing fiber arts over there. Yeah, she. I guess she did. Uh, I don't know. She went back to school and got a degree from Pratt or something like that, and found some uh, Japanese looms that she really liked. And she makes, uh, yeah, she makes beautiful scarves and sweaters and hats and all kinds of whatever you can make on a loom. She makes it and sells it out of her, I guess, on online and maybe out of a shop over there. Yeah, some really beautiful stuff. We're talking with Mark Metcalf here on Downtown. We had Tim Matheson. Actually, he's been on a couple times with us. And, and he talked about how yeah. uh, the Deltas and the Omegas were kept apart. But it, it was more than that. Can you tell the story of how uh, John Landis welcomed you to Eugene, Oregon? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got off the plane, with, as I said, after riding out there with Karen Allen, and swooning over her and went to the production manager's office to get my per diem. The first thing you do when you get on a movie set is get your per diem just in case they change their minds. So you've got some cash to get out of town or to get drunk with. And uh, Peter McGregor Scott, the production manager, said, uh, leave your stuff here. John Landis is over in the coffee shop across the parking lot. He wants to see you. He's having lunch with some of the guys from the movie. So I walked across the parking lot, walked into this crowded coffee shop at the Roadway Inn in Springfield, uh, Oregon, right outside of uh, Eugene. And I see John at a big booth in the corner, was you know, surrounded by five or six guys, one of whom I, I knew, Bruce McGill, because he and I drank in some of the same bars in New York <laughs> and were friends with a lot of the same people. And um, and I had seen Peter, Peter Riegert before, so I saw them sitting at the table. And I walked over. John waved at me and said, come on over, come on over. So I walked over, and I really, they're, really, they're really happy to see me, it seems like. And I get to be about 10, 15 feet from the table, and Landis points at me and says, that's him. That's Niedermeyer. Get him. And they start throwing food at me and yelling at me and jeering at me and calling me all kinds of names. In the middle of this crowded uh, restaurant. And so the line was drawn. It was clear that uh, we were to be uh, enemies and we were to be on opposite camps. And we were, so I, uh, I maintained that and uh, they, you know, I was invited everywhere, but I always said no, because I couldn't, I couldn't go to any of the parties with those guys. I didn't, I tend to work sort of uh, immersively uh, 24 seven when I'm doing something like that. And uh, so I didn't, I had the hotel, McGill, the long story is McGill stole a piano from the lobby of this roadway in and wheeled it across the parking lot, <laughs> put it in his room, and his room became party central. And everybody would go there in the evenings after wrapping and after dinner, or they'd have dinner there and they'd sing songs, they'd play the piano, play guitars, uh, do whatever people did in 1977 to have fun, including drinking and other chemicals. And uh, just generally stayed there until two thirty, three in the morning, having a good time. I don't know how they managed to shoot the next day. But I had the hotel move my room to right above McGill's room. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't be going to any of this, to Party Central. 
and had them move them to right above his room so that I would not be able to get any sleep because they'd be making noise down there all night long. So I'd stay up studying my script, spit polishing my boot boots, and generally just sort of getting angrier and angrier <laughs> at these guys. And then the way I, when I showed up on the set, I didn't have to sort of drum up the emotion. It was already there. But it's all in the name of, of fun. Oh, yes. It's all part of the game. I'm, I'm a big fan of Doug Kenny's. Uh, Josh Carper wrote the book, A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, is a, a good friend yeah. of the show. And I understand that, that Doug uh, helped you really find something in, in the character of Douglas Niedermeyer that, that maybe wasn't there on the script when he talked about his own brother. Yeah, he told me that his that the character of Niedermeyer, he was basing it in a lot of ways on his brother. His brother had been a kind of the golden boy of the family. And Doug, as as Josh talks about in the book, they made that Netflix made it not a very good movie of that. What I think is actually a very good book. Mm. Um, of it, and they they asked me to be in. I did a small part in it, but um, yeah. And his brother, I can't remember. His brother committed suicide or died somehow young. But Doug had always felt, or it appeared to me that Doug had always felt sort of the uh, um, not the favored son. That his brother was the favored son, and he was working some of that into uh, into the character of Niedermeyer, at least that's what he said. It gave me a, a uh, sort of an emotional grounding in that the, the character's all there on the page. When, when I got cast in it, McGill said that's the best acting part in the movie, and I think he's right. It was the most fun, uh, most layered sort of acting part. You can put a lot, as you can put as much into it as you can find and get into it. So I was very lucky to get cast in that part. But, uh, yeah, and I spent a lot of time with Doug, and, uh, yeah, he told me that. And he had some other scenes that were no longer in the script. One scene that I really always remembered and always wished we'd been able to shoot was uh, Niedermeyer. And it's part of the inspiration for me polishing my boots and studying my script. But Niedermeyer, with little metal toy soldiers, uh, acting out, say, the Battle of Gettysburg or some, <laughs> uh, some World War II battle. And, you know, you know <laughs> doing all the, the sounds. And uh, it would have been a fun scene to sort of to, to improvise and to make up. Uh, but they had cut it because they didn't before, before they even put the script together. They cut it, but it was a good it was a good idea and gave me a good sense of who Niedermeyer was. <laughs> it was at home alone, because I'm sure he was home alone all the time. Uh, his most intimate relationship was with his horse. And, uh, yeah, but, yeah, Doug, I spent the time, yeah, and Doug gave me that about his brother, yeah. After Animal House, uh, you were cast in uh, one of the most groundbreaking shows in television history, uh, Hill Street Blues, and, and you had a chance for a longer-term commitment, but you didn't want to get tied up. Yeah, they asked me, when they first cast me, they asked me if I wanted to do a contract, and I didn't want to do a contract at the time because why? Because I didn't want to get tied up, exactly. I didn't want to do the same part over and over again. Because you sign those contracts, and they're for, I think, five years, and uh, they want to get you, you know, hooked in if in case the thing goes. But I said, no, so they still use me. They cast me in three parts, and by the t- in three episodes, five, yeah, three out of the first five episodes, 
And by the time this, we were shooting the third episode, I actually had changed my mind. It was fun to do. It was innovative enough. Most television is not really very interesting. But it was innovative enough, and I thought, well, this could be fun, even for five years, and it's a lot of money. So I said, um, or I had my agent say, uh, Mark would be interested in a contract now, but by that time, the character I'd created, that they'd given me, but that I'd created, uh, had been established enough that ABC, is it ABC or NBC? I can't remember whatever ABC. it was. Uh, said no, they, <laughs> they don't want this character on all the time. He's a little bit too uh, mean and nasty, too much of a misogynist, too much of a racist, too much of a of a horrible person. And they didn't want me. They didn't want me then. Uh, but it was no big whoop to me because I, I, I had not wanted to do a season or even a full season to begin with. So the fact that they wanted me to have my throat cut by a hooker seemed <laughs> just desserts for a guy like that. Uh, you had never heard of Dee Snyder or Twisted Sister until he called you up and asked you to be in a music video. No, I didn't even have a. I didn't have a television. I didn't know what MTV was. Uh, uh, I stopped listening to popular music the day Beethoven died, and uh, <laughs> never, never paid much of any attention to to hair bands or that kind of music. And he called me and asked me if I wanted to do this video and I, in California, shoot it in California. I said, well, I'm doing a play. I'm off. I do a matinee on Sunday and no evening show. And I'm off Monday and I'm off Tuesday. I don't have to be there again until Wednesday evening. So if you can shoot it, you can get me to California, shoot it in a day, get me back to, to New York so I can do this play. So I, cause I don't want to miss a, I don't want to miss a performance of the play. Uh, yeah, I'll go do this. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. I don't know what it is, but uh, it, it's a trip to L.A. And I could use a trip. I always could use a trip to L.A. I left some stuff at a girlfriend's house out there, and I wanted to get it back. And uh, so I went out there, and Dee met me at the airport. I'd never seen him before. And this big, ugly guy with long blonde hair met me, and he was like a big old puppy because he was so excited to meet Niedermeyer. They'd used uh They'd used lines that I of mine in uh, in the in their in their bar show when they did bars up in the Hudson River because they loved the character, and uh, and he on the way driving me to where I was going to be living was what they didn't tell me. I didn't even ask him what they were going to pay me. Be paying me, but what they didn't tell me is that they didn't have any place. They didn't have much money. They didn't have a place for me to live. So I slept on Marty Colner's couch. Marty Colner was the director who directed a lot of stuff for HBO. And Dee said, okay, this is what it is. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon. <laughs> and you're Wiley Coyote, and we're the Roadrunner. And uh, we want you to write this stuff that you sort of scream at your son. And all that, all, the only thing I'm going to tell you is it needs to end with what do you want to do with your life? Because then the song starts with, I want to rock. And then they go into, we're not going to take it. So I went home and went to a friend of mine, Rex Weiner, who was a good friend, who was a writer. He created uh, a character called Ford Fairlane. Oh, yeah. uh, Andrew Dice Clay made a new movie. And he and I sat around over a couple of beers and uh, some food and uh, hatched this sort of, this monologue where I'm yelling at my son. And uh, uh, the only thing we were obligated to do, as I said, was to say, 
uh, what do you want to do with our, your life at the end? So it was his line that came up with, I think, uh, Rex's line. Uh, I carried an M16 in the war, and you carry that 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 electric twanger or whatever it is. But, uh, yeah, and the rest is, is history. In fact, that's the only work of mine that my father was ever proud of. He didn't think he didn't think it was respectable to be an actor, um, and he was only proud of it. I don't think he ever even saw it. He was proud of it because a friend of his read in the paper and down in Pinehurst, North Carolina, where he'd retired, that Mark Metcalf and D. Snyder had been in the video of what do you want of uh, uh, we're not going to take it had been played in its entirety on the floor of the Senate. Because Tipper Gore had used it as an example of sex and violence in rock and roll when she did her her hearings on uh, on the same sex and violence in rock and roll. So my father, my father was very proud that my work was in the Senate record book. <laughs> you uh, you had a wonderful turn as the master on Buffy. I, I can't even imagine how long did it take to do that makeup. Uh, started out, we took five hours because they didn't quite know what. The colors would be it's a it's a foam that's applied by uh, medical adhesive to your face and then there's a separate foam piece for the skull cap and the ears each ear is separate and the neck piece so those pieces and then the fingernails so it took all those pieces took a certain amount of time to apply but they're very well made and they were made ahead of time but then at the beginning of the season we didn't quite know what the colors should be. So they would put it on me and then paint it on me and we'd consult about color uh, and, and just general impression of the face as we went along. By the end of the season, uh, they had it down to about three and a half hours. It took an hour and a half to get it off because they take it off very carefully so they don't take a layer of skin with it. But um, yeah, so about five hours to put it on all together. And obviously, uh, Joss liked your work and then brought you back in Angel. Uh, they brought me back in Angel, and they brought me back in the third season uh, of an episode called The Wish, I think it is, where somebody in the show wishes that Buffy had never <laughs> had never come to uh, Summerdale or whatever it's called. I don't really, I didn't really watch the show. I just knew my part. And, uh, but it's a world, the world is then, and they, she gets her wish for an episode. So the master is on the surface of the earth, and he's like the mayor of Somerdale. Or is there, what, is it, what is that town called? I don't know what it's called. Sunnydale. Oh, my God. Sunnydale. It is Sunnydale. Okay, I was close. Um, yeah, he's the mayor of Sunnydale and set up this factory where they run human bodies through this machine and siphons all the blood out and like, drink a lot of wine and or a lot of blood in fancy wine glasses. And it's, it's a perfect world from the master. <laughs> yeah. Very memorable term with two episodes on Seinfeld as, as the maestro. And, um, and I, I saw an interview where you said you, you weren't really a fan of the show, but you watched enough of it to get a feel for the style and the way they operated. Yeah. I mean, I, I when I, I, it, it was hard to ignore Seinfeld. And it wasn't that I wasn't a fan of it. I just don't watch a lot of television. And I had a three-year-old son at the time, so I was busy with him. And uh, But when I knew I was auditioning for it, I watched uh, as many episodes as I could just to sort of get a sense, because you want to get a sense 
John Gilgood, the great English actor, said knowing style is knowing what kind of play you're in. And the same was true with uh, with television, especially with sitcoms. It's just knowing what what the language is that they're talking. I mean, they're all talking English, obviously. I don't mean it that way, but I mean it, the language of how the people communicate. Uh, Third Rock from the Sun is a different language than Seinfeld. Friends is a slightly different language than than uh, Seinfeld or a different language than Hill Street Blues. They're all they're all different because of the uh, the source, which is the humans that are creating them. And you know, if I'm going to go work in in a uh, sitcom or a, a or a or a half hour drama, I need to know what what the language is. Basically, it's the only way I can put it. Just how they how they talk, people talk to each other. So yeah, I watched it and found it's a great show. I still don't watch TV, so I haven't. When people start talking Seinfeld, who are fans, they know every episode. <laughs> and it's, it's really amazing. I'm always impressed. And the same is true of Buffy. I mean, I do conventions now every once in a while where uh, Buffy fans will come and I'll sign autographs and take pictures with people. And uh, it's fascinating how thorough the knowledge and the affection that people have for the world that Josh Whedon on Buffy created and that Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld created on uh, Seinfeld. It's really fascinating. Mark Metcalf is with us on Downtown. You had actually retired largely from the business. You were operating a restaurant. Uh, can can you explain the role that the first stage children's theater uh, out in Milwaukee had in, in getting you back into acting? Yeah, I... Uh... I just had gotten bored with the stuff I was doing, even though it was good and smart stuff like Seinfeld and Buffy. Uh, and I quit the business in 2000. As I said, I had a son uh, who in 2099 was, uh, what was he, five years old, I guess. And so my wife, the woman I was married to at the time, and I uh, decided to get out of town. And uh, she had been running all the food and beverage at Universal studios the the commissary there and she wasn't having a lot of fun and i wasn't having a lot of fun we weren't having a lot of fun we thought we'd have more fun we were misinformed if we owned a restaurant so i had some money and i bought a restaurant in milwaukee which is where she was from and we moved there and ran this restaurant together she really ran it i was what some friend of mine referred to as the kissable lips. I was the uh, <laughs> the front of the house guy. I was uh, uh, met people at the door and sat them and and tried to act like I knew something about the restaurant business, which quickly became apparent that I didn't. And uh, restaurant business is pretty intense, and it tore the marriage apart uh, just because it it twenty four seven. And when you're putting a place together, the failure rate is like ninety six percent of restaurants fail even before coronavirus. And um, so it's, uh, you've got to pay a lot of attention to it. And she was really good. She really knew what she was doing. And, uh, but it didn't, it didn't, wasn't good for their marriage. Um, but yeah, I, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what I did. And, and a guy named Rob Goodman, who was the artistic director and managing director of first stage children's theater in Milwaukee, had seen me do a play in New York called Streamers years ago, 
and has really impressed. And when it became, when he heard that I was in town and the local radio guys, as soon as they discovered that Niedermeyer was in town, they made a lot of a big deal out of it and had me on, which was fine. They were fun people. And, uh, and also it put fannies in the seats at the restaurant. But anyway, Rob came up and said, I've got this play and I'd be interested in having you do it, uh, or read it at least. And I said, Rob, I don't want to do children's theater. It's, I don't want to do ghosts and goblins and all that stuff. And he said, just read the play and tell me what you think about it. The play was about, it was called Einstein, Hero of the Mind. And it, uh, took Einstein from the time he was, uh, about seven years old when his teachers all thought he was slow and, uh, because he didn't really talk very well, stammered a lot when he talked, and it took him from there up through the bomb on Hiroshima. And for two years after that, it was fairly common knowledge that Einstein had just lived in Princeton at the time and spent most every day alone in a rowboat on a little lake in Princeton where I had I had done some plays down there, and I knew exactly the lake and knew the legend of Einstein in Princeton and uh, just trying to come to terms with his part in the making of the bomb on Hiroshima. And we did it with myself and a 14-year-old girl and 47 puppets, which were operated by six different actors. And it was a really phenomenal uh, experience in the theater to work with kids and in front of kids and in front of their families and on a piece like this. And it really sort of woke me up again to why I'd originally gotten into the theater, which and the theater then led because of money and opportunity and the way this country works, uh, this culture works, it led to movies and TV. And But I had to find my way back to the theater to remind myself why I'd done it, what I'd loved about it in the beginning, which is that relationship with an audience. I, I work with high school uh, actors here, and you put together a wonderful program uh, for young actors and writers in Milwaukee. Uh, in Milwaukee, I did. I put together, are you talking about collaborative cinema? Yes, yeah. Yeah, that I did for Milwaukee Film. Yeah, it was a, good, it was a really good program um, where we taught, uh, basically taught high school kids how to write for the, for the cinema, for movies. And then we would pick the best. We'd get 50 submit, or we'd get all the submissions we could. We'd pick the top 50 and take them through a couple of workshops and whittle it down to the top 10. And then we'd pick the best of the 10 or the, our, the, our favorite of the 10 short films that these kids would write. And then we would make a movie out of it and we would use them as crew and cast and professional actors as cast and crew and also students at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which is a very, very good film school. Uh, They do primarily uh, experimental film, so they were all chomping at the bit to do narrative, and we were all working on narrative. And uh, we would make a film a year. I think we did it it for about six years. I made a short film every year uh, from out of this program, and... uh, uh, good films, made nice films uh, that played at that festival and played some of them played at other festivals. And uh, some of the kids that we took through this program are still working in the business and, and are pursuing careers and having active careers in the business. Uh, you were also uh, you, yeah. were, you were featured in a documentary recently that uh, premiered at Sundance, Character, and uh, as I understand, that's a film uh, about 
typecasting and what happens to, to some actors who get pegged for certain types of roles. Well, yeah, that's uh, Vera Brunner's song, who has become a good friend, found out. I was introduced to her. She'd been in, lived in Missoula before me. We didn't know each other in Missoula, but she had moved to Columbus. And when I moved to Columbus, a friend of mine said, get in touch with Vera. So we had coffee and said hello and talked a lot, and we got along well. And uh, she was a filmmaker, and she came back to me and said, I want to make a documentary about performance. So we talked for six hours, recorded my speech for six hours, not on film, just recording. She would ask me questions. It was like this kind of interview, only a little bit more in-depth. And uh, she would talk to me about my feelings about performance and my feelings about the theater and my feelings about movies and television and so on. And, uh, and then out of that six hours of conversation... She picked a thread, a through line, and it's one of many through lines that are in there. But the through line that she tended to follow was my uh, bitterness, my discontent with how I was seen in Hollywood. How when I did the Niedermeyer character, that became what people wanted of me. So I was always doing a version of that character. And uh, which is not part of the reason I was bored, even though Niedermeyer, neither neither, uh, the maestro in Seinfeld nor the master in Buffy are really have threads of that Niedermeyer character. The master perhaps does, uh, but uh, the maestro doesn't really, other than his sense of persecution, because people don't call him by as the mice. They don't recognize him in the same way that they recognize Leonard Bernstein. But anyway, so, so they do carry some, some threads of it, but anyway, yeah, but that, that's the, I think the film's about the short is called character that did play at Sundance, played the big sky film festival was supposed to play at a lot of other festivals, but then coronavirus came along and got, uh, it got put on the shelf or it's on hold until we're done with this, uh, uh, whatever this is, <laughs> when we're done with it and we're back to, to uh, behaving the way we used to behave or in whatever new ways that we will behave, uh, maybe it'll show up. I don't know. I sure hope so. But it's a, it's a really nice little film. And it's, it's about more than that, but the main thread of it, yes, is about my feelings of being typecast and and. I act out. It's a very experimental documentary, too, because it's not just me talking. I, it's me talking, but I'm not a talking head. I reacted out a lot of uh, just myself and Vera. We, we improvised and, and did uh, work hard, did put on some costumes, and we improvised uh, all the visuals. What you see is all Vera's imagination and uh, aided by my imagination. Uh, but the vo- vo- vocal, the audio is all those six part of those six hours of me talking. It's only about 17 minutes long, I think, but it's a nice little short. It's good. That's wonderful. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful to talk with That's you. That's all right. I appreciate it. Maybe sure. we'll do it again down the road. Sure, anytime. Right. I'm happy to. That's Mark Metcalf on Downtown the Podcast. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and we'll return 
with part two, actress Joyce Bolifant up next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Yeah, we're on a little Mary Tyler Moore kick uh, the last several weeks here because... We're getting ready for a 50th anniversary special on a radio program, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, celebrating that 50th anniversary in September. And Joyce Bolifanta came back with us to talk about her role for several seasons as Murray Slaughter's wife, Marie, on the hit series. Here's Joyce Bolifant on downtown. At last, we got it together. <laughs> so you're not you're not rafting. You're not in the mountains today. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I hope this isn't the highlight of your day. No, well, it is. <laughs> Absolutely the highlight of my day. Oh, well, I'm very glad to hear that. So how have you been managing during this quarantine? Well, I've been very lucky. When I was at home in the desert, my son John, who lives in L.A., came to stay with me. And um, he's an actor, director, writer. And, of course, there was no work. So he said, I'm going to come be with you. And I said, great. And he also went to culinary school, so he'd have something to fall back on, being in the arts. And uh, and I just had the most delicious gourmet dinners any mother could have. Well, not and only, now, <laughs> and not only I, that, but, but you made some wonderful videos with him, too. <laughs> Those very silly videos. They were fun. That was at the beginning of the whole thing when we thought, you know, this will be over in a couple of months, and fine, let's let's do this. And then people kept saying, where are your videos? Where are your videos? And it was like, oh, we're a little tired of that. We'll get, John is um, John's busy writing scripts, and, and I left for the mountains of Colorado where it's cooler, and I have uh, two other children here and grandchildren. Well, that's wonderful. So I've been really very blessed and very lucky, and everyone in the family is well and taking precautions and uh, doing everything we've been told to do. Well, we're glad to hear that. Well, I wanted to talk with you today about uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the program, and you joined uh, very early on in the show, but you were you were pretty busy at the time doing doing stage work and TV and movies, but uh, but they managed to, it seemed, to work around your schedule. They did, uh, except for one time they called and said, we need you for a table reading. You're in this week's show. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm having another show. I'm at St. John's Hospital having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> but they had, they had written your pregnancy into the series. They did, yes. I was very pregnant in one of the shows. <laughs> <laughs> what was the atmosphere like on that show? It, it seemed like a, a pretty close-knit group of not just actors, but writers, directors, and, and everybody involved. Well, I think everyone respected the writers so much. 
because we'd come in for a table reading and everybody would be laughing. It'd be a wonderful script, but they didn't stop. They kept polishing and polishing to the last moment, and that's what made the show so wonderful. You just can't, you can have the best actors in the world, but uh, who is it who said the play's the thing? (laughs) (laughs) And, And it's true. I mean, you really... You really have to have a good script, and they were uh, dedicated writers. Well, and so many of them were women as well, which gave a perspective that uh, you didn't get in other shows during that time. That's true, very true. What was it like uh, working with Mary? She was uh, obviously wearing a couple of hats as the star of the show, but also uh, in many ways the boss. But it seemed like she was very generous and and making sure that at least as an actor, she was part of the ensemble. Oh, absolutely. She didn't act like the boss. No, she was uh, very good and very uh, conscientious about people, um, you know, feeling comfortable. And it was different for me because I would leave. And, you know, when you leave a show and you come back and you leave when you're a reoccurring character, each time you come back, it's like, restarting a friendship all over again Mm. but with this group i always felt very welcome and it was like coming home it was great and gavin mcleod i told you we had a chance to talk with him recently my gosh what what a wonderful man what was the experience like uh, working with him in, in your scenes well i'll tell you he's just the dearest person you ever want to meet and his wife patty too And luckily, we ended up living almost next door to each other in the desert. And so our friendship has carried on for a long, long time. And uh, we've done shows in the desert uh, to raise money for different organizations. And he's just the most giving man. I I don't think, I I, I can't tell you, I'm not going to say I don't think, I know I have never heard that man say an unkind thing about anyone or any project that anyone has worked on has has come to fruition. He always praises it. It could be the worst damn work in the world, (laughs) but he would find something great to say about it. (laughs) We're talking with Joyce Boulefant here on Downtown. One of my favorite episodes that features Marie is the episode called The Son for Murray, when there was uh, some oh. disagreement in the Slaughter family. <laughs> yes, there were. He wanted me to get pregnant again, and <laughs> I'd already been pregnant a lot. And um, I was very upset about it. And what was wonderful is that we ended up adopting a child. And it was um, that particular episode won all kinds of awards. And... Is that the one that Helen Hunt played my daughter? I don't think so. That was another that one. That was another one. That was her first show. Yeah. Right. But I love this show and the message that it had for everyone because there's so many children out there who need a family. And um, we really don't need to populate this world anymore. I don't think we're maybe what maybe that's what this plague is all about. I don't know. Hmm. Um but I think I just think it was a great message about being able to reach out and love a, a child that didn't have a family. Did you have a, a favorite episode that you were in? 
I did, and I think it may have been when I thought he was gambling. I'm not sure, but I remember, I love the scene where I'm crying. I'm in Lou Grant's office, and I'm sobbing on Mary's shoulder, <laughs> and she takes my head and puts it over under Lou Grant's shoulder, and I'm still sobbing, and he takes my head and put it back on Mary's shoulder. I just thought it was a very funny scene. Yeah, and when we talked with Gavin about the episode where he had taken a second job working at night so he could buy you a present. That's right, and I thought he was having an affair with Mary. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's terrible is when I couldn't do shows, and uh, he would show up and they'd have to make some excuse I was home with the children, and that's because I was doing so many other shows in between. And, uh, and then I found out in one show, that he had a crush on Mary. And I tell you, as Marie and as Joyce, I got my feelings hurt. (laughs) (laughs) What the heck is this? Why are they writing that? I don't like that. (laughs) Well, he's such a great person. I was trying to remember the story from your book. I think it was when when you had the fire at your home that that he showed up with with hot dogs for it. Oh, hot dogs, yes. Well, actually, it wasn't a fire. It was a terrible earthquake. That's right. That's and right. that, yeah, it was a 7.1 or 2 earthquake mm. right after John, my youngest son, had been born. He was born in uh, January, and that happened in January, a few weeks later. And he was so worried about us, he came with uh, hot dogs from Mason's. <laughs> <laughs> he now has a new favorite hot dog. And that is uh, Eisenberg hot dogs because we have a friend named Phyllis Eisenberg and she owned Eisenberg hot dogs. And boy, they're really good. They serve them in movie theaters. You can't buy them at the store, but be sure to get one when you go to the movies. <laughs> I look forward to doing <laughs> that again. To do that. Yes. You ever get to do that again? Exactly. Joyce, why do How you think. How are you doing? Oh, we're, we're doing are well. You? You know, I, I teach school full-time when I'm not on the radio, so we're... Oh, you do? Yeah, we're Good trying to you. figure out what that's going to look like in a few weeks' time. It's it's a little scary. I know. Now, where are you? I'm in Maine. In Maine. And, and our it's, numbers it's, are very low here where we've done very well, but it's also the middle of tourist season, so people are here from all over the country, and we're, we're hoping they didn't bring anything with them. Oh, I know what you mean. It's the same thing in Colorado where I am. You see all Texas and Oregon license plates in Florida, and you want to go, go away, go away. Uh, it's a strange time but indeed. What, what, what do you teach, Rick? I teach uh, history and uh, civics, American government. Oh, you know what my history teacher wrote on my report card? <laughs> Joyce has a mind like a sieve. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to my mother and saying, what's a sieve? She said, well, that's something you pour in something, and it comes right out. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I also but work. I work, I, I work a lot with dyslexic children. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I work with uh, high school theater kids as well, so I, I love that part of it. But Good for you. Yeah. Great. I don't know how we'll do that this fall. We're, we're hoping to figure out how to do something. I know. I just saw a Zoom um, presentation by the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I have 
two uh, young friends that are going there, and they did the importance of being earnest on Zoom, and it was spectacular. I couldn't believe what a good job they did. That sounds great. Yeah, I, we were just watching uh, the other night, a uh, friend of the show, Stephen Tobolowsky and his wife, Ann Hearn, did a uh, did a, a Zoom play the other night, a brand new play uh, through the Road Theater in Los Angeles, and, and it was wonderful online. It, it's amazing what they can do. I mean, I can imagine looking right at a camera and not having another human being to relate to. Have you ever, have you ever uh, in your stage work, I'm, this has happened to everybody, but I, I was talking about it with a friend the other day, been in that situation where your scene partner has gone up on their lines and, and has oh. no idea where they are, and you've got to try and guide them back home? Have I ever had that experience? <laughs> I had it with two actors. I'm even going to tell you who they were. Kier <laughs> uh, DeLay had a very difficult time learning lines in a play that we did uh, by Larry Roman, a wonderful play called Crystal Crystal Chandelier. We did it at the Burt Reynolds Theater, and we're hoping for it to go on to New York. But... <laughs> Here had a really hard time, and in one scene, I'm playing a prostitute who wants to be cured, and he's my doctor, and I've fallen in love with him, and he's irritated, and he comes to the apartment, and I say something to him, and he looks at me, and he says, I am not your honey, and I am not your bagel. I'm your doctor (laughs) (laughs) instead of your baby. Well, it's very hard not to laugh (laughs) at those moments. And the other was Gary Collins. I was doing a new uh, two-character play that my friend A.J. Carruthers wrote. And we were doing it at a very prestigious theater in Virginia. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the play, he looked at me and he said, I don't even know why I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) And my eyes crossed. And I gave him the plot of the play. I said, well, I think you wanted to meet with me because you don't want the divorce. (laughs) 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 Oh, Lord. (laughs) I I was doing a summer theater, repertory theater, many years ago. And uh, we had an actor who would drop lines once in a while. But we were doing... We were doing a, a Commedia dell'arte show, and everything else we were doing that summer was Shakespeare. And in the middle of the Commedia piece, he came up with a line from one of the Shakespeare shows. And I thought, well, okay, he has the line. It's just from the wrong show. What will I do? <laughs> and I, I just I played along and said my line and hope the audience didn't notice. I just love those moments. I mean, it's so fun when you get theater people together. And you talk about those theater moments. I remember I talking about Shakespeare. An actor went up on his lines. Uh, is it where do they pour poison in his ear? Is that Macbeth? Oh, it, I, says, I think so. <laughs> so he tried to ad lib Shakespeare, and he said, <laughs> "What is this I have here? I'll pour some poison in her ear." <laughs> <laughs> well, he made it rhyme. That's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Very hard to ad lib Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> we we had the, we were doing an outdoor Shakespeare, and uh, and a train came through in the middle of oh, a show, yeah. <laughs> close enough to the stage that we had to stop the show. And I think it was uh, I think it was two gentlemen of 
of Verona. And one of the actors said, oh, I, I believe that's the 1120 from Verona. We'll pause here. <laughs> I love it. A play with Tallulah Bankhead with her portrait was over the fireplace. And two men, the curtain opens and two men are having a brandy and leaning against the mantel where the beautiful portrait is. <laughs> and the actor said his first line was, her breath would take your beauty away. <laughs> and <laughs> scene. Job. Yes, in scene. <laughs> but theater, I mean, live theater is the best. Absolutely. Can't wait to get back to it again. Joyce, uh, it's wonderful to talk with you as always. Thank you so much for, for making some time for us this afternoon. You, you stay safe and be well out there in Colorado, and we'll catch up with you again soon, I hope. Okay, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. And don't forget to get read my book. Oh, you read it. I read my your book. Hollywood I... Husbands. Oh, it's really selling. I can't believe it. Well, it should. It's a wonderful book. It's a very, it's a very uplifting book and a great message. And so, yeah, everybody ought to read it. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me on today. Joyce Bullifant, always fun. And, and again, you know, we get talking about one thing, and then it becomes a, a discussion of <laughs> interesting and challenging live theater moments. Yes, <laughs> and those stories are epic. They're nearly as good as the live radio miscues that we've all experienced through the years. Yeah, always, there's nothing quite like live for for things happening. <laughs> for get to go wrong. <laughs> Can we say that on a podcast? Yeah. Okay, good. Just making sure. Thank you to uh, Joyce Bullifant. Thank you to Mark Metcalf. And thanks to you for joining us this week on the podcast. Spread the word. Give us a decent, give us an awesome review or don't bother. And tell your friends. Subscribe as well. And join us next time for another edition of Downtown the Podcast.